stand with me and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to venture into this healing of the paralytic this morning with our time left and probably just get through the first five verses and we'll tackle this the rest of it the next time. But what an amazing account this is and I hope it encourages you with what Jesus Christ did this day that we're going to read here and what he continues to do in people's lives. Look with me at this account. We'll read the whole account down through verse 12. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, that's Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he, and he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow, this is the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. Father, now we ask that you would amaze us through your word again. Make Christ glorious to us. May the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We are prone to wander, Lord. We're prone to leave the God I love. And yet, in one beautiful passage of Scripture, you can capture our hearts again and again. This is Jesus, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you that you sent him. We thank you that he died and his death was sufficient. It washed all the way back to the first believer and all the way forward to the last and we thank you for that sufficiency. We cling to that, Lord. We thank you that our sins have been washed away, Lord. Father, we thank you for a chance this last couple of weeks to, to be sent uh, to go and visit brothers and sisters around the world. To be reminded that there are men teaching in the Latin world, opening their Bibles, even as we speak, probably preaching the same truths, Lord. You're saving people in all types of walks of life and culture and language, just like you promised. And so, Lord, cause us to be a church that constantly seeks to be involved with what you're doing globally. 
Lord, thank you for those that are here today. We know we have many using this week for travel and vacations. May you give them sweet rest, Lord. May those of us here enjoy a day off, Lord, to uh, celebrate what you've done here in this, this nation, Lord, to give us freedom to preach the gospel, freedom to meet as we are doing now, Lord. We do thank you for this country, Lord. And Father, we would pray that you would continue to give us freedom to proclaim the greatest truth that man needs, Lord. Not democracy, not republic, not none of those things are great, Lord, but they pale, they pale in comparison to the preaching of how you can have your sins forgiven. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to, to allow us to do that here, Lord. Father, thank you for this time. Now, may your word uh, refresh us, strengthen us, convict us, challenge us, and direct our lives through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I got thinking about the holiday a little bit this week and realized that it was 242 years ago, uh, this July 4th, that freedom rang um, for our nation. Uh, it's an interesting battles that they went through. It, it just wasn't that day. In fact, probably one of the greatest statements happened almost a little, well, actually more than a year before that. March 23rd, 1775, there was a great speech given. War was inevitable with England, and uh, a great man named Patrick Henry went down to uh, the Congress Senate of Virginia and said, you got to join us. And if you remember that great statement he made, he said, give me what? Liberty or give me death. That's where that came from. And that great speech is what is said to have rallied that convention there to join uh, the Virginian troops for the Revolutionary War, uh, which went on to give America success and become free. And so we mark this week of independence. We became an independent nation and we became free. Well, I got thinking about that a little farther and I go, well, as a Christian, I think I say something very similar. Give me forgiveness, liberty from my sins, lest I die eternally. I mean, that's a statement that a believer would make. Give me forgiveness, Lord. It is the single greatest gift God gives man. Forgiveness of sins. Without it, you will not see God. You will suffer eternally. It is the greatest gift. Paul says it this way, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that though we were slaves of sin. And just think about that terminology. We understand this in America, don't we? This terminology. Though we were slaves to sin, whether it was slaves to England or, or even the great nation that, uh, that put people into slavery. We understand these terms. This is where we were. But thanks be to God that though we were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart, he, Paul says, to that form of teaching that you were committed and have been freed from your sins. It's the greatest message. We have freedom from sins. Many times, uh, as I've traveled through the years, or I can be anywhere, golf course, I get the question, you know, because you don't know, always don't know what I do, and they ask me that inevitable question. So what do you do? 
and my response is going to either provoke conversation or I'm going to be standing there alone often. Um, and so I've learned to, instead of saying, well, yeah, I'm the teaching pastor at Riverbend or whatever like that, I, sometimes I just say, I have the greatest job in the world. And I'll go, well, what is that? Everybody wants to know what the greatest job in the world is, isn't it? And I said, I get to tell people how they have their sins forgiven. Isn't that a great job? Isn't that all of our jobs? That's what we do. We tell people how they can have their sins forgiven. Because we have received that forgiveness. It is the greatest freedom that man can ever know. And it doesn't matter where you're from, what your culture is, what your background is. If you receive that, you are the most wealthy people in all of the world. You've received the gift of freedom. Romans chapter 7, at the end of this great dissertation of Paul wrestling with the past control of sin in his life and how it could hold him. He, he expresses his way this way in verse 24. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, what a statement. One verse, Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next phrase, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ. He gives the answer. See, that's the gospel. That's the message. And as we venture into this narrative, this, this reminder, this story that gets told about this paralytic man, the greatest thing that happens to this young man is his sins are forgiven. And we want to look at that this morning and find great encouragement. A couple of thoughts today. Number one, there's a Savior back in town. Notice in verse 1, he's returned. And when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterwards, it was heard that he was, he was at his home, or he was at home. Now, you'll remember in verse 31 of chapter 1, after he's done several things, he's He's had an exorcism in the temple, right? The demonic man came, was in the temple. Just Christ preaching brought that out of him. The man he falls before him. The demon begins to speak. Christ removes him. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then that night, the, you know, Pandora's box just opens up. Everybody comes to him. And he's healing and he's teaching. And then he removes himself uh, early in the morning and he goes out to pray to talk with his father. Finally, his disciples find him, and they said, everybody's looking for you. And he knows, he, he knows what they want. And he's not here to be a miracle worker. He is here to be a savior. And so he says in verse 38, this little phrase, let us go elsewhere. And he did. He left Capernaum. And he traveled around Galilee, and he preached and teached, and then he's returning. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 2, notice the Savior's back in his, quote, kind of hometown, his home base. So this marks the return of Jesus to where he began his earthly ministry, as Mark records in chapter 1. Now notice it says several days. It's a very vague, uh, we don't really know how long he was gone, but he was gone for a while. 
And, and then notice it was heard that he was home, right there at the end of verse 1. It was heard that he was home. Well, the, the wording of this little phrase suggests that, that there was great interest. <laughs> Can you imagine that there is one who demons fall before? Who dying women of great fevers and illnesses of uncountable healings that took place is back in town. Oh man, it got out quick. You want to talk about the phone ringing off the hook. He's back. <laughs> He's back. And so there becomes this frenzy to get to him. It seems most likely that he's back in Peter's family's house, where possibly this is where he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And this report causes the people to flock to this house in great numbers. Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together. The word many there is just... It's, doesn't, you just have no idea. You get the impression there's a lot here. So that there were no, no longer uh, room. There was no longer any more room there for the people to get in. You can see the idea. Not even near the door. So this crowd is spilling out now. But in this phrase, and he was speaking the word to them. So soon the house was packed of people. Um, leaving no room for others. Uh, he mentions a door here, so probably uh, some kind of compound where there was a door that led to the street uh, there. Maybe, possibly even Peter's mother-in-law's little room or something that he had stepped in to check on her. However it happened, they're flowing out into the street listening to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he was speaking the word to them. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, little phrase. Jesus uh, always taking opportunity to teach the word to a very captive group of hearers. This is what he does. He gathers people together, and there he speaks the word to him. Um, speaking, it's a, it's a Greek word that gives the idea that he was more in a conversational teaching mode. He doesn't use the word preaching here. And so I thought this, I thought, it sounds like that he, he, he's speaking to them in this beautiful voice. I'm sure when they listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, this man who uh, possessed great powers of God in their eyes had a, had a very kind manner to him. And, and he's not healing. The Bible doesn't say he's healing at this point. He's just speaking the word to them. And he's doubtlessly got them captured by the things he's saying. His manner, his tenderness, his love probably is personified in his, account, his countenance here. And, and this must have been very attractive to a very weary group of people, right? Um, it, it's interesting, as you study these texts, you go, well, how many people were sick in these towns? I mean, it seems like it was an epidemic at times. And, and, and as we talked in chapter 1, we realized, well, how many demo, demonic people can be in one town? He's casting out demon after demon. He's dealing with this. You can just see the suppression of Satan working so hard in this time, in this little area of the world uh, where Jesus was. And these people were here hearing the master speak. He's speaking to them. I mean, it has the idea that he isn't preaching at them. He's having a conversation. He's talking with them. He's including them in his teaching ministry here. Jesus is the breath of heaven to them. He's the breath of heaven to all those who follow him. And his word was always good news and perfect in delivery, perfect in truth. Can you imagine sitting under his sermons? He'll never use the word awe. Um, 
He never loses his place in his notes because he doesn't need them. It's perfect delivery by a perfect Savior with perfect compassion and tenderness in every word that flows out of his mouth. You still have that today. And us preachers who are much less in that homiletic ability, all we're doing is taking what he says and giving it to you. That's what warms our hearts. And this is what he's doing, it seems, in this text. Notice verse 3. In the middle of this, there came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So it seems Jesus was still speaking when this interruption of the paralytic and his four friends comes onto the scene here. And these men were interested in nothing else but getting their friend to Jesus. This was their goal. They're carrying a helpless man. The word paralytic means a man that has lost his bodily movement here. And so this, we would, that's why we translate it paralytic. He, he can't move, right? We don't know if it's quad or, or what his case is, but he can't move. And so the imagery here is very clear in the text and suggests that these men are carrying him along in some kind of portable bed. Verse 4, being unable to get to him, you can see the, the, the word picture here, the crowd's out the door and into the street because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they dug an opening, they let him down, they let him down the pallet on which he was lying. So there's a density of the crowd um, proving futile of trying to reach the Savior here. It seems these four men recognize that the conventional method of getting to the Savior, who certainly has the authority to heal this buddy that we love, was not going to work. But what's so fascinating about these guys is they're not, they're not frustrated with that, with that process. In fact, I would say their faith develops a sanctifying, ingenious plan to overcome the obstacles of getting to Jesus Christ. And that's what God does. He starts to draw people to themselves and amazing things happen. And one of the things we did on this trip was listening, particularly in Costa Rica, these, these three men, listening to their testimonies of how God drew them to themselves. And amazing events happen. And God is doing this. He's in these details to bring about the salvation of this young man. Notice um, that they make their way to the rooftop. And when you study this time frame, most of the roofs in this day were flat-topped. Um, and there was an exterior uh, set of stairs that would get you to the top. And so here these men look at their situation. They begin to say, we got to get this man we love in front of this, this Jesus. He has incredible powers to heal. Um, what can we do to do it? Somebody recognizes, hey, there's some stairs, there's a roof, let's try that. <laughs> and the next thing you know, these men are on top of the roof, and they are digging into it. Now, um, it's not hard to understand how roofs will, were built. You can read a little bit of uh, some history on it. People say, well, how do you know this? Well, how do we know Indians live in teepees? You know? <laughs> well, we know because that's culture gets passed down and, and drawings and so forth. So, so we understand this. And these roofs were built very simple. They would lay beams across about a three-foot span. Um, they would put 
slats on the bottom of them. And then they would stuff everything from thorn bushes to hay in there for an insulation. And then they would put stone slabs or tiles uh, of some kind of tiles on there and, you know, or dried mud and they'd put it on there. And then they would sl- sl- kind of slurry seal that with another type of adobe mud so that the rain would hit it and roll off. So it didn't take them very long to go, I think we can get through that. <laughs> and these, these guys uh, make short work of this roof. And they start to dig through this thing. And I, I thought this week, I go, well, you know, the room's packed. You know, and somebody's probably sitting there in front of Jesus. And, you know, <laughs> it's raining hay, you know. And somebody's up there tearing the roof apart. Um, you know, coming from a carpenter type of guy, you know, I've done a few of those things. You're going, well, who fixed that thing? You know, <laughs> somebody did. I'm sure these young men must have done that. But regardless, as they're trying to get him there. I, I read a couple of commentaries on this where they quoted some of these liberal guys. They're going, well, you know, we just don't think this really happened. This is a story that got made up. Who makes this stuff up? Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's the word of God. Luke records the same thing. These men go, we got to get him to him. How are we going to do it? Let's go up there. Let's dig a hole. Let's put him in front of him. And it's God behind all of that. Because he's going to save this young man. And so it's not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. So, it, it, you know, they go, oh, where did they get the ropes and all that? Peter's family was a fishing family. <laughs> Who knows what was laying around there? All kinds of fishing tackle. Let's tie this on and lower him down. Here's the point. He ends up in front of Jesus. Look at verse 5 and our second thought here today. Mankind's greatest need. Mankind's greatest need. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. Here Christ gives personal verification of these four men's extraordinary and persistent faith. Their, their faith was in the, ability, in, the, in the abilities of Jesus, right? They knew Jesus could heal, and yet, and yet there was proof and living nature of their proof that they, took whatever, they did whatever it took to get this friend of theirs in front of them. And although their bold actions interrupted Jesus' teaching ministry, he doesn't rebuke them for it in the text. And in fact, nothing's recorded in the text of the homeowner Hey, you tore my roof apart. Maybe it was so precious that men, these men had such a strong desire to get their friend in front of the Lord Jesus, people were just closed-mouthed. But it seems very clearly that Jesus approved of their faith. And he directly commends it by turning to the one who's suffering. It should be noted, and I want to say this because the text doesn't, but I think it should be noted that this young man must have had faith. He must have knew at some level. Now, we're not talking about saving faith because God has to give that. But we're talking about faith that this man can give me something that I don't have. That's, that's healing. That's ability to use my limbs again. And, and, and as I was writing the sermon, I thought, well, Lord, he's a paralytic. He's not a mute. So at any time, he could have said, look, uh, let's not do this. Uh, this is going to happen, or you're going to drop me on my head. Or, uh, you know, He seems to have the faith that God can save him. And so 
Jesus addresses this paralytic with a very affectionate term, isn't it? He says, son. The NASB um, translated son, it, it, it's the Greek word for child, technon. It's child, but we know it's a young man, so uh, the translation comes across as son. And, and it doesn't mean that he's some little boy, but it probably more this idea of this Christ kind of has this fatherly spiritual presence there. He speaks to this young man and just calls him son. And then Jesus makes the greatest statement this young man could ever hear, though he didn't expect this, though he didn't deserve this. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, the verb forgiven stands emphatically before the subject. So what that simply means is this was a positive declaration of a fact It isn't some whimsical thing Jesus just let out. He forgave that young man's sin, past, present, and future. I'm going to explain this here in a moment. At that moment. At that moment, that man's sins were wiped out. And Jesus hadn't even died yet. That makes you think, doesn't it? The verb's in a present tense, so it has the idea that right here, right now, I'm forgiving you. And it's important to note that neither did the paralytic or his four friends come for that reason. Do you get that? Nowhere in the text it suggests like, hey, let's go see Jesus. Maybe I can get healed and get my sins forgiven. They're coming for healing. Now, In their society, in the Jewish culture, particularly the religious culture of the day, the Jews taught that you have to be forgiven first before you could ever be healed because your sin, I mean, your your affliction that you're having is because of sin, right? So you remember when the blind man in chapter 9, the disciples say, they come along, he's blind from birth, what they say? Who sinned, this man or his parents? So that's in their Jewish thinking, Right? If you're sick here today, they would say you're sick because of your sin. Now, God does do that. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that he does say that there are some sick because of mishandling of the gospel, the Lord's table. There's a mishandling of those things. So we do, we do know the Lord does discipline. He will do that. He will even, he will even judge man on this earth with, with all kinds of things. But there was an assumption that automatically, because he was paralyzed, that he was, that he was sick. Now, I'll think through this a little bit. Don't you think that him and his family did everything they could possibly do according to the law to go in and get forgiveness in order to get healed? How many lambs and blood and uh, guilt offerings and sin offerings were probably given on the count of this young man and he did wasn't ever healed. In, in the Jewish culture, that would have been known. He, he, would have, he would have done everything he could trying to gain forgiveness of sins so he could be healed. But here, Jesus decides to turn to not his healing first, but his eternal in his internal and in his eternal position. What's wrong with you? The, what is the greatest problem with you is you still have the wages of sin upon you. And there is no way to escape that. Doubtlessly, 
doubtlessly, like so many before him, they were just living a day-to-day life. So how does Jesus forgive sin before he's died for it? That's a good question, isn't it? Let's walk through the Old Testament just a little bit. Let's start close to the cross and work our way back. You got a thief on the cross, right? In fact, you have two of them. Matthew 27 says that both thieves were blaspheming Jesus. Do you realize that? Luke records the salvation of the one thief. But Matthew 27 records that both of them were blaspheming the Savior. And it seems, according when you put the accounts together, Matthew and Luke, that there's a moment in time when all of a sudden that thief says, wait a minute, stop, this isn't right, this man has done nothing, we are deserving of what we are given, turns to the Savior and says, will you remember me today? And at that moment in time, God, Christ hanging on the cross says, you, you will be remembered. I will meet you in heaven today. Forgives him, in, in all sense of the words there, forgives him of his sin. In fact, he actually dies, dies before the thief and meets him in heaven. <laughs> Let's work our way back. You have all the patriarchs and matriarchs of heaven. Look, at, look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to see this passage. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches. Now listen to this. This is Moses. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. So when we speak of salvation before the cross, I think sometimes in our world we think, well, we're on this side of the cross and everything is kind of forward thinking. The cross in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is the center of all humanity, all of life. It floods back and forth. And so from the cross, it washes over that, that thief on the cross right there and it washes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And and. Certainly, it, they're justified before God before even that cross is done because God looks at the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and applies that to him. Now, Genesis chapter, there's another one that we can think through. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Just think about this with me. I'll, I'll tell you what's happening. Um, uh, Abraham is trying to figure out how he's going to become the father of this great nation and have children that number the seas of the sands, uh, the sands of the seas, right? And he says, well... Maybe the son of Eliezer, who is really my son because he's my slave and he's in my home and I own all things, maybe God can use him. And God says, no. Come out of the tent. Look at the stars in the heaven. See if you can count them. For this will be the numbering of your offspring. And at that point, verse 6, chapter 15 of Genesis, 
Abraham believed, and the Bible says it was reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. At that moment, God declared Abraham righteous. The same way he does to us. By faith we come to Christ. By faith we believe in a deliverer. And so at this point in this paralytic's life, God, without this young man seeking these things, opens his mind doubtlessly and plunges in the forgiveness of sin to him. Think about this verse. Let's go a little farther. Psalms, uh, Psalms 103 verse, I think I have my notes here, so, verse 12. The psalmist is describing the forgiveness of sins. He says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. That's an amazing statement. And so here, even before the cross work of Christ, God is proving that through Christ, he can forgive sins. Let me give you one more verse just to boggle your mind a little more. Go to, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, particularly verse 29. There's such key to understanding salvation in these verses. For, for those whom he foreknew. Well, let's stop right there and let's think about the paralytic. Was a paralytic a surprise to Jesus? Not one bit. That salvation of that young man was written down before the foundations of the world. That whole event was laid out before the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew it. And so Paul says this, For those whom he foreknew, foreloved, he loved this young man. He also predestined, he predetermined his future to become conformed to the image of his son. That's one who is forgiven of sin. That's one who is holy. The only way you can be like Jesus is you have to be sinless. You have to have your sins forgiven. You can't be in the presence of the Lord. You can't be in heaven. You can't be there with sin. That's why heaven is so beautiful. There's no sin there. God's there. He's holy. And he makes us holy. So he must forgive your sins. And so here God had predetermined, predetermined to change this young man's life by forgiving his sins. And now notice this, so that he would be, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, predetermined their future, he also called, pulled them out, kaleo, Picked them out, chose them out. These whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous. That's what he did with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15, 6. He declared him, credited him as being righteous. And then it says this, and these whom he justified. Now look at this little phrase. He also glorified. Oh, wait a minute here. I'm still alive. I don't feel very glorified yet. I mean, I know it. I'm tired. I just got off a long plane flight. I don't feel very glorified. So why does it say that in the past tense? Why does the Bible write this way? Because this is how the plan of God works. This is how he sees us. This is what we're positioned in. We are in his plan. And at the moment of salvation, you are prepared for glory. There doesn't need to be anything added to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so at time of salvation, when you, whether you walked an aisle or prayed a prayer in the dark of your bedroom or, or your grandmother led you to Christ or whatever the situation was, at that moment as God justified you through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he made you ready for glory. And he looks at you this way. He sees you as holy. He sees you unstained by sin. And so he calls us sons and daughters. And when, he looks, when Jesus looks at this young man, it's so precious, and says, son, <laughs> your sins are forgiven. The blood of Christ, which was going to flow in the next two and a half years, was washed back and applied to that man. He was held from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that God had a forbearance, held back his wrath till the blood of Christ could cover them. And so that's the cross, I want you to get this, the cross is the center of all things. We think maybe, oh, we're a little better off over here. The cross is the center. It flows back perfectly. It flew all, flowed all the way back to Abraham, to Adam and Eve perfectly just as it flows forward to you and I and to the last believer on this earth that God elects to himself. There is no different in salvation. Every man, woman, and child who will ever enter the gates of heaven must have their sins forgiven, be declared righteous, and stand holy in the presence of God. And that's what Jesus did on this day. Now think a little bit with me. Um, I grew up in... Some churches that taught it this way. Well, Jesus gave, forgave his sins at that time, but after Jesus' death, he's going to have to invite Jesus into his heart. Whoa, wait a minute. Where in scriptures do we ever see God partially forgiving sins? There's nowhere. Uh, that, that's Catholicism. Well, you've come to this point, God saved you, but now you're going to have to do this, this, and this in order to attain that. That was the message of uh, the Jews after the resurrection. This is what Paul battled in, Galatian, in Galatians. This is why it was anathema to him. He said, let, let it be anathema if you preach a different gospel. They were saying, yes, you can put your faith in Jesus. Yes, he probably died and, and was some kind of sacrifice for you. However, you're going to have to do these to obtain and keep forgiveness of sins. World's religions are still teaching that to this day. This man, it's a clear declaration, your sins are forgiven. And, I, I, and like you and I, did he even understand it? I, I mean, did you understand the magnitude of what we're speaking above now, about now when you got saved? No, <laughs> you were just grateful that God saved you. It is in time when we begin to understand that he predestined us. He, he chose us from the foundations of the world. He had an irresistible grace that was inescapable. He was coming after us. And you go, well, wait a minute. I got in my car and I drove to that church and I got saved. Yeah, God was in that. Just like he was in these young men who said, wow, we can't get to Jesus. There's some stairs. There's a roof. Let's tear the roof down and put him in front of Jesus. God's in that. Because when he is going to save, there's no roofs, there's no houses, there's no crowds, there's no situations, there's no culture. Nothing stops him. It's beautiful, isn't it? And you and I, you and I have heard these same words if you're a believer. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. This is the message of Christianity. 
This is what we speak. This is what we teach. This is what we hold to. There's no other way to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, sin is imputed to Christ. I'm passing a lot of stuff. We'll come back and deal with some of this next week. Sin is imputed to Christ. This paralytic sin could... uh, he, he, He could not have figured out how to forgive, get his sins forgiven, right? So the paralytic sin could only be forgiven through Jesus' coming death, right? We understand that. So the Father was going to impute his sins. So Jesus had the authority, knowing the Father's plan, that, that the Father was going to impute the sins of this paralytic onto him while he was on the cross. Now, you know this verse, but look at it, because we want to mark this stuff in our minds. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because this is just a great lesson to remind ourselves so we have the gospel on the tip of our tongue so when we want to share it with somebody, it's there. and helps us understand the depth of what Jesus did in this moment with this young man. So the Father had a plan laid down before the foundations of the world before man even rejected him. He knew man would reject him. He knew he would send his son. He knew Jesus Christ would hang on that cross and he knew he would impute the sins of all of the elect upon Jesus Christ. So we know this verse, right? He, God, made him Christ, verse 21 here, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that, the reason for all of that, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? So, now in what sense did the Father make the Son sin on our behalf? Well, the Father judged Jesus as though he committed the sins of the paralytic. So think about that. Jesus says, I'm going, I forgive your sins because in the Father's plan, he's going to judge me for everything you did, so I have the authority to forgive you. That is astounding, isn't it? That he would love so deeply... That him and the Father, the Spirit, the triune God, had worked out the plan of salvation. Now he has a young man in front of him. He looks at him knowing that his sins would be, in just a matter of years here as he gets to the cross, are going to be imputed to him, and he has the authority to tell him his sins are forgiven. That's what he's doing. He did not actually, God here in our text, make Jesus a sinner because he's the God-man. He can't sin. But the Father, think about this, judicially reckoned or imposed on Christ to have committed the sins and, and, and thus taking the judgment for those whom he was going to become a substitute for. Now, when you think through imputation, your mind has to think Old Testament too. Remember Leviticus chapter 16, there's a goat, right? The high priests come, they put their hands on him, they transmit, it's a, it's a teaching that we are trans transmitting the sins of the nation upon this goat, and this goat has led to slaughter. The blood is brought before the altar, right? And then the great passage in Isaiah is written this way. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each to has turned to our own way. But the Lord, now listen to this, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, imputation. So as he's healing this man, I mean, but Gina and I got in a long discussion yesterday. It's just theological. It's so fun to talk with your wife about theology. And you just sit there and talk about 
this young man, God is taking, Jesus says, your sins are forgiving, knowing that God's going to take a sin and put them upon him, just like the Old Testament would speak. Listen to this verse again. This is Isaiah 53, 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So the iniquity of the paralytic, God would cause that to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ would perfectly pay for that. And so he is able to say, I know the Father plan. I know how this is going to work out. Your sins are forgiven. 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself bore our sins, bore them, wore them, held them, pressed upon him in his body on the cross. So just as the blood of the sin offering of the goat in Leviticus was sprinkled on the mercy seat, to withhold the wrath of God, so also was Christ brought forth as a propitiation by his blood. So he satisfies the Father. Now, it's important to note that the paralytic, as well as the other, uh, all other true believers who escaped divine punishment, that his sins and our sins did not go unpunished. So some people say, well, well wait a minute. There's not, it's not fair. Some people are going to get punished and, and they're going to go to hell and they're going to see the full wrath of God and others are not going to. But that's not true. That's not true at all. Every sin is judged. Do you realize that? There is not a sin that's ever committed from Adam and Eve's uh, first fall to the last human being on this earth. Every sin will be judged. Do you realize that? The question is, is where this judgment fall upon. And in the case of the paralytic, his judgment for sin fell on Jesus. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And he has freedom from that. What an amazing thing. Think of King David. Uh, we're close. Go to Romans chapter 4. I'll use this passage instead of the, the text in Psalms. i got to wind this up. I'm wound up, but i got to wind this up. Romans chapter 4, he's been teaching on this great justification set apart from works. Jews are probably going to read chapter 3 and they're going to go, this guy has lost it. Um, this free grace and all this. And so he, in chapter 4, he uses their, their two main patriarchs, right? He takes David and Abraham, whom the Jews, you know, they had you know, a, uh, a view of God and then they had these guys. Right underneath him. So he takes them, and, and chapter 4 is so fun to study because you begin to realize this. You begin to realize that he's showing that salvation of Abraham and David is the same thing that happens to you and I. He's talking about the doctrine of justification. But particularly in verse 7, he, he's quoting Psalms 32 of David, thousand years before the death of Christ, speaking of the results of justification, speaking of the results of having your sins forgiven. Listen to what he says here. Verse 7, Blessed are those who lawless deeds have been forgiven. Wow, what a statement. A thousand years before the death of Christ. Well, did he get them done from sacrifice? The Bible says sacrifice of blood and goats can't appease God. Nobody receives, forgiven for, uh, nobody receives forgiveness of sin through the blood of bulls and goats. 
So here, a thousand years before the death of Christ, this is how powerful the death of Christ is, how it floods back and, and covers all people. David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Look at this, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the, the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Did he get that way because he went to temple every week and offered the right things and said the right things? Or does he believe in the grace of God to forgive sins? That God was going to bring a deliverer who he would judge in his place? The Old Testament's clear. They knew that God was going to take that off them. And so they sing out these praises. When we were singing that song, Oh, How I Love Jesus, I thought, and leaned over to Gina, I said, I wonder if the paralytic got to that point pretty quickly and saying, Oh, how I love Jesus. Not because my arms and legs work, but because my sins are forgiven. And I, I know you're going to meet that man someday. Because his sins are forgiven. <laughs> and you're going to meet him in heaven. And he's going to tell you about how we devised this plan. We didn't know God was in it. We were just trying to get there. And I had these buddies that were willing to help me. And I got there and he saved me. And I walked out. <laughs> that was the lesson of the of the miracles, wasn't it? Four, we got to keep Jesus' power and authority to forgive sins of all time, for all time. Look at one more verse here. I, I just want to prove you this power of Jesus has to forgive sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. My point is the Old Testament saints weren't just held in limbo, keeping their fingers crossed, hoping that Jesus was going to come and somehow it was going to wash back. The Bible, for all intents and purposes, teaches that Abraham was declared righteous. Just like you and I. And yes, the final sacrifice was coming in the Lord Jesus Christ, but these brothers and sisters of the Old Testament came to Christ the same way, came to God the same way, a faith in him through grace alone, through Christ the Deliverer who would come. Look what this says, verse 12. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice, look at this, for sins for all time. For all time. For the paralytic's time, for Scott's time. For Moses' time, for Reverend Petrie's time, who's with the Lord, uh, our, our dear brother who lived many years preaching the gospel. All the way back to Abraham's time, to the, the last believer on this earth. His death, once and for all, was for all time. This is why he could say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven because I'm going to hang on this cross and my, that my blood and the work of Christ, the propitiating, propitiating work, is going to satisfy the Father and it's going to flow right back onto you all the way back to the first believer and to the last one. So he offers this great salvation. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcised of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions. And here's my point with this verse. That paralytic just didn't have his sins forgiven for whatever he was ill from or just for a moment in time. Jesus forgave him for everything. Let me wrap up with some application five. Number five here. A forgiven life of a once paralyzed sinner. I, I couldn't help think about this young man. 
He's absolutely helpless, isn't he? The men who were physically able could not get to Jesus, let alone this guy. (laughs) This guy has no power on his own to get to Jesus. Is that not true of you and I before salvation? I think he's a picture of you and I. He has no ability on his own to get through that crowd, to get in front of Christ, to gain what he ultimately needs. He has no ability to do it. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He's desiring the wrong things. Think about that. There's people in here, and I've heard your testimonies. You got drugged to a passion play. Um, You came and heard a message by Pastor Roy begrudgingly. Um, One dear sister told me not too long ago, said, I was so mad at him for what he was preaching. I hated the message that he preached. Well, why were you here? Well, you know, we were having a hard time in our marriage. We thought maybe it would work. Wrong reason. God used it. (laughs) Isn't that astounding? That's what he did in your life. Your motives were not pure. You did not come uh, on your own saying, oh, all I need is Christ. You know, I need thee, I need thee every hour. I need. No, 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 no. You had another reason. And yet God used that to draw you. And so when we think about this, now we've received this. We're like the paralytic, right? We, we came for something else and we received forgiveness of our sins, a right standing with the Father in heaven for all of eternity. So what do we do now? Well, listen to some of these scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Act like free men. And listen to this. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Act like free, forgiven cleared of your debt type of people. Don't act like you're still a paralytic, like you're still helpless. God saved you. He's taken your sin away. (laughs) You are free. The chains have fallen off. The dungeon door is open. Stop living in jail. I mean, that's what Paul and Peter and the apostles are challenging the church. You're not paralyzed anymore. You've been healed. Your sins are forgiven. 1 Peter 2, 24, we read the first part of this. We said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And listen to this. So that, he might, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So if God really did press upon him, impute our sins to him, and he bodily died, the result is, Peter says, that we should die to sin and live to righteousness. And I think if we don't do that, then we're not in the faith. Because the result of such a perfect saving faith is a life drawn in a desire to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have any desire to live for Jesus, then brother or sister or one who may claim to be, you may not be saved. If your sins have been imputed to the Savior, and you received his righteousness, there is now an internal desire, not a perfect, we're still we're in a process of being conformed to the image of Christ, but there is a daily desire to fight sin by the strength of God through his word. 
See, saving faith, listen to this, saving faith gives you sanctified eyes to see past today's struggles and look to the joy of being with Christ in glory. And I, and I know it's hard some days, and some of you all are going through some hard things. We pray for you. We meet with you. We visit you in hospitals. We come and see you, and we walk away and say, God, give them eyes to see beyond the ailment they're struggling through. Give them eyes to see that you love them, that you have saved them, that you have redeemed them, that you've reconciled them, and they have a home in heaven. And whether you choose to heal them on this earth or not, God, give them eyes to see your son in this moment. That's our prayer, often, for ourselves and for you. Because that's where you find joy. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ compels us or controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Paralytic, Scott, Abraham, put your name in there. Therefore all died. So we died with Christ. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on our behalf. This is lordship salvation. We believe he died for us and we belong to him now. That's Christianity. And that's what those brothers have discovered down in the middle of the heart of a very poor, dirty city in Costa Rica. They said, we finally discovered that this wasn't, well, get Jesus, get heaven, live your life however you want. This was sell out, deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow Jesus. This is it. This is everything. And that's what they're doing. And by God's grace, they're listening to Tony on the internet and here we are, uh, engaging in ministry with them. One last verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, just down a little bit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature? What's passed away? Old things. I can't wait to meet this paralytic. I want to hear what his life was like. I'm sure he went through struggles like you and I do in our Christian life, but he was probably singing some of those same songs that we sang this morning. Because his sins were forgiven. And he had tremendous joy. Brother, sister, are you lost joy? Have you lost joy right now? Has it evaded you? When David sinned, he said, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. What's robbing you of that right now? Is there unconfessed sin? Sin destroys. Even in a believer's life, it still will destroy. It breaks things. Its goal is to take you and hurt you and pull you away from the things of God. That's always Satan's goal. Are you forgiven of your sins? Receive that again in a way. Not in being saved again, but say, Lord, I just want to thank you for forgiving me. I've, I've drifted away and lost my joy because I let myself venture into sin and I have not embraced the forgiven person that I am in you. Let me jump for joy like a paralytic did because I'm free. I'm no longer a slave to sin any longer. So much to learn, Lord. Father, thank you for a few moments together in your word. There's, there's more here than... Lord, we have time to dig into, but we pray, Lord, that you would stimulate us as we think about your power, Lord Jesus, in an instant to grant forgiveness of sin to this young man. You knew the cross was coming. You knew the perfect work would be accomplished there. You knew you could offer him full pardon. 
because of what you and the Father had laid down before the foundations of the world. And this man went away with his sins forgiven. And so, Lord, we thank you that we too have experienced that as well. There was a day for many of us in this room that you forgave us of our sins. And Lord, we pray as we read these last passages that we would now live in light of that forgiveness. Lord, let us not be caught up in the things of the world, things that rob us of the joy, Lord. Though we work in the world and we're in the world, we are not of it any longer. We have a holy, righteous position in heaven reserved for us, unfaded and untouched by the world. So let us be like the paralytic that receives a gift that lasts for eternity. And may we live in light of those things. Lord, we praise you for this message in Jesus' name. Amen.